And it's another week. This is Andrew Wood, Executive Director of Hope Resource Center. Thank you so much for tuning in, whether that be live over at Joy620 or you're listening to the podcast at investinghope.com, iTunes, Google Play, wherever podcasts are found, you can find this show as we have a lot to talk about this week. <clears throat> if you'll remember last week, I talked about what's happening out of Washington, D.C. with the, uh, the whistleblower and the handing over of five fully developed uh, babies that were uh, aborted, and it appears uh, they were late-term abortions. And not a lot has been said in the mainstream uh, media. I even hate that, that phrase, mainstream media, but not a lot of folks are saying much about it. Uh, of course, the pro-abortion lobby is not talking about it. The authorities there in D.C. are uh, not doing it, an autopsy. Uh, and so that abortion clinic there in D.C. will just continue to go unchecked. And uh, that's frustrating, to say the least, and hopefully some, some movement will happen. I know some uh, congressmen and senators there in Washington are asking for more to be done. Uh, so we'll see what comes of that. Uh, but, but in the meantime, there's some things happening around the country that we need to discuss. You know, a couple of weeks ago, I talked about a, a Maryland law that was seeking to be passed. And uh, some, some things have happened there in Maryland that uh, needs our attention. So um, Maryland is joining 14 other states. This is an article from the New York Times. Maryland is joining 14 other states and allowing trained medical professionals other than physicians to perform abortions. So, so if you if you tore your ACL, do you want a trained medical professional to fix that, or do you want a physician that's an expert in that field to fix it? Look, look, I'm pro life as they come. I don't want anybody performing abortions. But but don't let the abortion lobby tell you that they care deeply about women. And then in the same breath say, but anybody can perform an abortion. Is that what we want? Is that where we want to go? Well, apparently in Maryland, that is what they want to do. That change is part of a bill expanding abortion rights that was passed Saturday by state lawmakers overriding the veto of Governor Larry Hogan. Under the new law, which will take effect July 1st, nurse practitioners, nurse midwives, and trained physicians assistants will be able to perform abortions. The law will also require most insurance providers in the state to cover the cost of an abortion at no cost to the resident and directs the state to invest $3.5 million a year into abortion care training. Is that what you want your tax dollars being spent on? You know, what's going to happen when Roe is overturned is it's going to go back to the states. But, but what you're going to have is you're going to have blue states, abortion states, in my opinion, overcorrect. And you're going to have a lot of citizens of those states go, hold on, we're okay with abortion, but, but I don't want my tax dollars paying for it. Hold on, we're okay with abortions, but, but I want a doctor performing that uh, service. Uh, we're okay with abortion, but, but I don't want it to be done all the way up to nine months and then 28 days after birth. I don't think that is the direction the populace wants to go in, but this is what's going to happen in those blue states is they're going to overcorrect. They're going to go all in, put all their chips on the table, and we'll see how it shakes out. We'll see what the elections look like after that. 
They stood up for health care. They stood up for access to abortion care, which we believe is health care, and health care is a human right. So they did what was right for the women in the state of Maryland. That's what Karen Nelson, the president and chief executive of Planned Parenthood of Maryland, said about the legislation. Laura Bogley, the director of legislation for Maryland Right to Life, and of course they have to add in there an anti-abortion organization. Now notice when they talked about Planned Parenthood, they didn't put comma pro-abortion organization. But when they talk about the right to life, they have to put in their comma and anti-abortion organization. Learn the language, folks. This is done with purpose and strategy and intent. When they write these articles, they call Planned Parenthood a women's health organization. They call right to life an anti-abortion organization. Is right to life anti-abortion? 100%. Have no problem with that. Is Planned Parenthood simply a women's health organization? 100% no. They are a pro-abortion organization. Yet they don't designate them that. Because why? They don't want to muddy the waters. You see, but we got to let everybody know right to life is anti-abortion. It's silliness. The new law in Maryland comes as many state legislators across the country seeking to severely limit or outright ban access to abortion. State lawmakers enacted more abortion restrictions in 2021 than any other year since Roe v. Wade in 1973, according to the Guttmacher Institute, an abortion rights research organization. And research by the Institute suggests that the country is poised to adopt more anti-abortion restrictions this year. The Supreme Court is also expected to weaken or even overturn Roe by the summer. When Mr. Hogan, a Republican, vetoed the bill on Friday, he wrote in an open letter to the Speaker of Maryland's House of Delegates that allowing non-physicians to perform abortions would, quote, set back standards for women's health care and safety, end quote. But the House of Delegates overrode the veto by a vote of 90 to 46. The vote in the state Senate was 29 to 15. Ms. Bogley said that she and others expect litigation challenging the constitutionality of the new law. That's not something the public supports nationally or in Maryland, she said. Ms. Nelson maintained that the practice of allowing non-physicians to perform abortions was normal in other states. This is the standard of care in 14 other states, Ms. Nelson said. So Maryland, who typically is on the front end of reproductive health care, actually had a little catching up to do here. Now, think about that. Think about that. Look, I'm not, I'm not degrading nurse practitioners or physician assistants or midwives. I'm not degrading them at all. I love them. I think they're great. But when you're doing a, a service that takes the life of a, of a human in the womb, the, the reason why they're making a shift to this, let's be honest, the vast majority of OBs, the vast majority of physicians do not perform abortions in this country. It's around 75 to 80% of all OBs do not perform abortions out of choice. Not because they're, they're required, not, not because they're in certain states and certain states don't let them do it. Out of choice, they say, we're not going to do that. So what some of these pro-abortion states are seeing is, well, we don't have, we don't have the people. So we got to open it up to allow other folks, not just physicians, to perform abortions. Because the numbers aren't adding up. Now my question is, why are we not seeing interviews with these OBs that refuse to perform abortions?
Well, because again, that muddies the water. When you, when you see an interview on cable news, on most of them, when you see an interview on, you know, the big three, NBC, ABC, or CBS, when you see those interviews, what you're seeing is the folks that, that help push a certain narrative. So they're not objectively looking at this. They're, they're saying we need to get a doctor in here that performs abortions. That's who we need to interview. Instead of sitting down with, a, with an OB that refuses to provide that abortion. Folks, we, we are at a, at, a, at a strange place where, where states are openly pulling back the curtain on what they want when it comes to abortion. And it's the same people that will say, trust the experts. It's the same people that will say, trust the science. It's the same people that will say all these things. It's the same people that will say, we need, to have, have celebrate, we need to celebrate women's rights. We need to have access to reproductive health care. We need to have access to all of these things. Women matter. Women have value. It's the same people that will say this are also the same people that say, we need more abortions. We need to allow more people to provide those abortions. It's the same people that say, I can't define a woman. I don't know what a woman is. So it's, it's hard for people to come along and say, oh, yeah, I'll trust that science. I'll trust that mindset. I'll trust that narrative. I'll trust the quote-unquote experts. When the quote-unquote experts are pushing an agenda that's ending lives. Is that the direction we want to go in? I don't think it is. The polls don't support that. Now, some people will say, oh, well, the populace around the country are ultimately pro-choice. They may be. But when you get into the third trimester, they're not. When you get into all the way up to nine months, they're not. And I guarantee you, if you go around and you ask the populace, do you want nurse practitioners and doctors uh, or physician assistants and midwives to perform abortions? I would say most of them would say no. Yet here we are. We know that in some abortion clinics, they're training teenagers to do ultrasounds with no medical experience, no experience of any kind. Is that what we want? Where do we draw the line? Oh, well, that's a slippery slope argument. and Slippery slope arguments are not good. I mean, just a few years ago, we changed the definition of marriage, and look where that's gotten us. Now we have men swimming against women. So the slippery slope argument isn't, uh, isn't something we should neglect. There were people back then that told you what was coming, and we're seeing it. And the same thing with abortion. Oh, well, abortion needs to be safe, legal, and rare. Abortion needs to be safe, legal, and rare was the mantra and the argument for the bulk of Hillary Clinton's political career, for the bulk of Bill Clinton's political career, for the bulk of Obama's political career, for the bulk of uh, Joe Biden's political career. And the list goes on and on and on and on. It's always been the argument until about 10 or so years ago, and then the safe, legal, and rare went away. And now you're seeing states pass laws that are calling for abortion all the way up to nine months, and in some cases, the perinatal stage, which is 28 days after birth. Or they'll say things like, well, just let it, 
be delivered and then just kind of sit over there by itself and then we'll decide what we want to do. That's what Governor Northam of Virginia said just a few years back. And we were called crazy right wing conspiracists when we called him out on it. And now we're seeing laws be passed around the country that are doing exactly what he said. So it's not a conspiracy. It's happening. So we call out Northam and say, hey, he said the the quiet part out loud. And then Northam comes out and says, that's not really what I meant. And then we see legislation pass in Maryland and legislation pass in other parts of the country that are doing exactly that. Then we see five fully intact humans that were late term aborted in Washington, D.C., And the authorities say, yeah, we're not going to do autopsies. We're not going to check in on that abortion clinic. We're not going to follow up on this at all. Like, we can see the images, folks. We talked about it last week. You can't deny what happened. You can't say that's a blob of of tissue or a clump of cells. You can't say it. And if you do say it, you're a liar. Because look at those pictures. If that's a clump of cells, then my 11-year-old is a clump of cells. If that's a blob of tissue, then I'm sitting right here as a blob of tissue. We got to be better. We got to hold them accountable. And I think what's going to happen is these blue states, as the pro-abortion states pass legislation, that that ease restrictions, that celebrate abortion, that make it easier to get abortions, that that create sanctuary abortion states like California and other places are doing. As we see that move, you're going to have some of the populace of those states go, hold on, I I was with you until you started talking about abortion up to nine months. I, I don't understand that. Because you have a lot of folks that are like, okay, I can get with you on the morning after pill. I can get with you on the the medical abortions where they take a pill and then they take another pill a day or two later and it provides the abortion. But but when you're talking about eight months, there's no pill to take. You have to physically go in and end the life of the baby. The vast majority of the populace is going, "I, I can't line up with you on that. So we'll see how it shakes out as they try to overcorrect. And what the populace, what the citizenry, what the taxpayers will say when they start seeing their tax dollars go to these atrocities. We'll be back. So as we continue the conversation today, look, we, we have to be understanding of what's happening around us. And and the only ones that are being extreme <clears throat> are the abortion lobby. Look, pro-lifers, conservatives, we're not being extreme. Simply saying, hey, we want to protect life. If that's being extreme, then I'm, I'm I, okay, guilty, I guess. But the abortion lobby is looking for ways to end the life of babies for the full nine months. That, uh, what's extreme? Which one? Go read that article at Live Action and then tell me who's extreme. 
when it comes to what we saw in Washington, D.C. just a couple weeks ago. But they're planning, folks. And, and look, conservative states, pro-life states are planning, and, and so obviously blue abortion proponent states are planning as well. There's another uh, article over the Washington Post that, that talks about this as well. In 2018, Democrats in Michigan made a historic statement by putting forward an all-female ticket for every statewide office. Every one of them was a champion of abortion rights, and every one of them won. Michigan, though one of the most tightly fought swing states in the country, is also a place where support for access to abortion is strong. Nearly 70% of voters in one recent poll expressed support for the Supreme Court's 1973 Roe v. Wade decision establishing abortion as a constitutional right. Now, there, there should be a caveat there. Most people don't understand truly what abortion is. But when most people think about abortion, they think about abortion in the early stages. Now, that's wrong, and I disagree with their stance on abortion in the early stages. But if you were to tell them what a late-term abortion looked like and what that involved and, and what you had to do, I promise you they're not going to be in favor of that. But you see, they're not talking to them about that. They're not laying that out because you lay that out and you're told, oh, that's graphic, that's triggering, you can't do that. But some of these folks need to see it. Especially if you are pro-abortion, if you are for abortion rights, you need to look at the images. I have seen a partial birth abortion. You think I wanted to see it? No. But I needed to see it. And it's barbaric. But I watched it so that I could say, this is what it is. And we're better than that as a society. And no free society, no quote-unquote progressive society should be in favor of that barbarity. That nobody should. And so if you were going to claim to be for abortion and think we need it all through the nine months, then you should be able to defend when you see it. That shouldn't be triggering for you because that's what you want. So if that's what you believe to your core, then defend it. But you can't defend it. There was a video over the weekend in, in China where they're, they're killing animals, dogs and stray cats, and not just stray, but, uh, but even domesticated ones that, that are within people's homes because of some disease that is making its way through. And they're, they're killing them on the streets. And I saw so many posts of people saying, that's terrible, I can't believe they're doing that. Yet there's no outrage over what happened in Washington, D.C. Why? Because many of them are choosing not to look. They're choosing to turn their back, close their eyes, shut the blinds, not look at what's happening around us. Oh, well, that's triggering, that's graphic, I can't look at it, you can't make me look at it. And I know for some, it's difficult, especially if you're post-abortive. It's a very difficult thing to witness or see. But if you were going around fighting for the rights of abortion and, and to lift restrictions everywhere, you need to defend what abortion is, not just the medical side of, of taking a pill, but the surgical side. You have to defend that. That's your stance. You have to defend it. And I mean defend it in its full. So, so not just say, I'm, I'm okay with it, but, but you have to walk through the procedure and defend it. But they'll never do that. 
because that'll be pulling the curtain so everybody can see what that is. However, if the court does what many people expect it to do in an upcoming Mississippi case and overturns Roe, the law governing abortion in Michigan will revert to one of the most extreme in the country. A 1931 measure, unenforceable after Roe, but still in the books, that makes it a felony to provide the procedure except where necessary to save the life of the pregnant woman. I think it's very clear the assault on women's privacy rights, health rights, and bodily autonomy is not theoretical. It is a very real and present danger. That's what Governor Gretchen Whitmer uh, told this author. Given that both chambers of the Michigan legislature are controlled by Republicans, Whitmer says there is no chance they would vote to get rid of the old law. So last week, the governor took another tact, an aggressive one, using powers specific to her office that allow her to leapfrog normal legal processes. Whitmer filed a lawsuit to put the question of whether abortion is a protected right under the Michigan Constitution directly to the state Supreme Court, an elected body with a slight Democratic majority. Whitmer acknowledges that, legally speaking, she is rolling the dice and seeking to apply state constitutional protections under its due process and equal protection clauses. Here's the thing. The governor or the Michigan Supreme Court has never weighed in on this, and that's why it's important to do so right now, she said. Regardless of how people personally feel about abortion, listen to that. It's a woman's health and well-being that should be driving these important medical decisions. That's nonsense. Regardless of how people feel about it, they should just fall in line. Is that what America's about? Is that what freedom's about? Regardless of how you feel about it, you should just fall in line. It's what's best for women. Says who? What about the women that, be, that, that have been aborted? What, what about them? What about the women that have had uh, side effects and, and lost their life? What about them? Do, do those women matter? Millions of females have been aborted. Or do, they, do they matter? No. The, oh, you don't mean those women. You mean the women that fall in line with what you want. You see, this isn't about women's rights. This is about power. It's about what they believe is the, the, the right, quote-unquote, that trumps all rights, which is abortion, and it's nonsense. It doesn't empower women. It doesn't strengthen women. It does nothing except harm. That's what it does, harm. It creates more depression, more anxiety, and more death. That's what it does. The governor said, I'm confident in our legal case that we're bringing, but I can't predict precisely what the outcome is going to be. Whitmer added that she hopes the state Supreme Court will move quickly before the end of June when the U.S. Supreme Court is expected to issue its decision in the Mississippi case. That would ensure there's no gap during which Michiganders would lose their access to abortion if Roe is overturned. For Democratic governors in deep blue states such as New York and California, protecting abortion in a post-world or post-Roe world is a given. Not so for those in more conservative, closely divided ones. Many of us who have these antiquated laws on the books or have got hostile legislatures that, that don't believe in this right and are even making it more difficult for women, I think we are assessing what tools we have. Now, listen to that. What if a conservative governor just said, yeah, I don't really care what the law in the book says. I don't care what the legislature says. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to overrule them, and I'm going to use the powers that I have to make it where every single uh, constituent can have a gun. We're just going give to them, give them the guns. They would be raked over the coals. Even if that governor said, look, we have antiquated laws on the books. We have uh, a hostile legislature. 
and I'm just going to do what I want to do. That governor would be raked over the coals. This governor, because this governor in Michigan is for abortion, is being celebrated as, uh, look at her go. She's doing everything she can against those terrible pro-lifers in her state. In those old, antiquated laws in her state, look at her. We should celebrate her. You see the nonsense that we have in media that, that they say this is unbiased? It's not unbiased journalism. They're pushing a narrative. Abortion is the narrative. They want more of it. So the people that are writing these articles believe that to their core. And so they're celebrating a governor in Michigan that is going against her constituency, that is going against the legislature, and that has even said, look, this probably isn't going to go well in the courts, but I'm doing it anyway. This isn't about getting a right. This is about winning elections. It's about winning Twitter. That's what it's about. It's not about the constituents of Michigan. It's about winning Twitter. That's what politics have fallen into, conservative and liberal. And we must call for better. We'll be back. There are three wooden crosses on the right side of the highway. Well, that's a good one right there. As we, as we think about what's happening in the country uh, concerning abortion, look, we, we, we must... We must be honest with ourselves. We, we must hold people accountable. And, and, and we, we must be consistent. What's happening in Michigan, what's happening in some of these other places, especially where you have a, a governor that, that their policies uh, or their politics are different than the legislature. So let's say you have a Democratic governor and a Republican legislature or vice versa. That governor now is thinking, especially in Michigan, Whitmer, uh, her approval rating is not great. She did not handle COVID well. She put a lot of sick people in nursing homes. A lot of people died because of her policies. Same thing that happened with Cuomo in New York. Uh, there was a kidnapping case where, where there was a quote-unquote militia that was trying or, or looking to kidnap the governor in Michigan. And, and those people got off because the, it was pretty much entrapment by the FBI. So her numbers aren't looking good right now. But this is the golden calf. Abortion is the golden calf. So if we put all our eggs in that basket, she originally ran as a moderate. She originally ran saying, we're going we're gonna to address the issues that face the people of Michigan. We need to fix our roads. That was her mantra. That was her, her, her big thing. We need to fix our roads. Well, now she sees the political landscape shifting. I need to get more political. I need to get more in the news. I need to win Twitter. And so we're going to shift, and instead of a moderate, I'm going to be far left on abortion. Because they believe that's the winning narrative. It's not, but they believe it is. And so as we, as we think about that, we must be willing to have the tough conversations. We must be willing to, uh, to go further and, and to say what needs to be said. And hopefully we will be willing to do that. But but I now want to shift a little bit because this is Easter week. And, and I want to give you some hope. And I want to look at what Easter means to us as believers, what Easter means to the lost, why we look to uh, a Good Friday and then Resurrection Sunday that the tomb is empty. And there's a there's a piece over at Desiring God from a year from a few years ago. 
And it's titled, He is Not Dead, Seven Victories on Easter Sunday. And the article is by Marshall Seagull. It says, The believers who saw the risen Christ with their own eyes and touched him with their hands spent the rest of their lives talking about the resurrection. For sure, they preached crucifixion and propitiation, the, the central hinge of the gospel message. But the message of the cross was not the most controversial thing that they had to say in their day. The claims the apostles made about Jesus' death were wildly controversial, but they were persecuted and martyred, not because of what they said about his death, but because of what they said happened next. The sermons and acts are filled with the resurrection, showing over and over what it means for those who follow Christ. Almost no one debated that Jesus died, but the Jews violently refused to believe that he rose just three days later. The Jews were not offended by the two blocks of wood as they were by the empty tomb. The largest stumbling block was in fact fact a boulder rolled away in preaching the resurrection of Christ. Jesus is not dead. And when he rose from the grave against all of Satan's lies and schemes, he guaranteed for you the greatest realities in the world. 2,000 years later, the resurrection still preaches God's relentless commitment to win every victory for you, including these seven for Easter Sunday. God has defeated death for you. Satan conspired with Judas, Pilate, and the Jewish leaders to kill the author of life, but God raised him from the dead, as we see in Acts 3, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And if you believe in him, death cannot hold you either. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. We see that in John 11. Jesus rose to prove that he had defeated death. Until he rose, death seemed to swallow up every ounce of life and hope from generation after generation. And we know this in Romans 6, for the wages of sin is death and none is righteous, no, not one. So how could sinners have any hope of escaping death? God had promised everlasting life centuries before, but the resurrection revealed it was certain for his chosen, redeemed, and adopted sons and daughters. Though many have lived and believed and died before him, Jesus was the firstborn from the dead, as we see in Colossians 1. And if there is a first, God means for more to follow him. Number two, God has purchased all his promises for you. Jesus rose to prove the Old Testament promises and warnings were truly from God. God's promises have always been the only lifeline of hope for those of us living under the supreme death penalty. But the resurrection brought those promises into fuller and higher definition. Acts 10 says this, They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. The promises simply seem too good to be true until we see God raise Jesus from the dead. Suddenly, what seemed so impossible to man was wonderfully possible and guaranteed with God. Number three, God will judge every sin committed by you or against you. While the Apostle Paul was waiting in Athens, he preached, God now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Jesus rose to prove that he would one day judge all sins. Every sin we have committed and every sin committed against us brings God into question. Will justice prevail? Will we all be wiped away and thrown into hell? When God raised Jesus from the dead, he made clear that every sin would be punished. 
on the cross for all who repent and in judgment for all who refuse. Number four, God will restore everything wrong or broken in front of you. The apostle Peter calls his fellow Jews to Jesus saying, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. That's Acts 3. Jesus rose to prove he would eventually return and make all things right. This last year provides another 12 months of evidence that this world is broken and breaking. And this Easter is another statement that our hope is alive as Jesus. The world will be rid of sin, including all its causes and consequences. In God's wise and loving plan, that day is not today, but today is a great day to stop beside the empty tomb and remember that will be one day. Number five, your bondage to sin is great, but God really can set you free. Peter healed a man lame from birth, inviting him to finally walk after all these years in the healing name of Jesus. The priest came to arrest Peter and John, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. In custody and under trial, Peter boldly says, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That's Acts four, ten through 12. Jesus rose to prove that you really can be saved from your sin. You do not deserve salvation. You could never achieve it in your own strength and resolve. If Christ did not rise from the dead, hope would have lain next to him in the grave. But he is not dead, and therefore we have hope. Number six, God will not only rescue you, but people from all over the world. Jesus was the promised Messiah of Israel, but he did not die and rise only for ethnic Israel. Again, Paul preaches, I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Jesus rose to prove God has chosen people from everywhere in the world, not only from Israel, but from Asia, Africa, and America. His blood was sufficient to purchase people from every tribe and language and people and nation. His death not only reconciles us to God, but reconciles us to one another across every conceivable barrier and boundary. And his resurrection is powerful enough to hold out hope to people everywhere on earth. Seven, no evil can disrupt God's good plans for you. The death of Jesus looked like the single greatest defeat God's people had ever experienced. Instead of ascending to a throne and conquering his enemies, the promised king had been humiliated and crucified. But at the precise moment, when it looked like evil had won, God was wielding his every ounce of wickedness to accomplish his greatest victory. As Peter preaches to the Jewish officials, Jesus of Nazareth delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by. Jesus rose to prove that God is sovereign even over the worst evil in the world. In the ultimate act of rebellion and injustice, God was pivoting all of history with love to save and satisfy his people. And by raising his son from the dead on Easter, he promised to work all things, including the hardest and most painful things in your life for the good of all his sons and daughters. 
So as we talk about what's happening around the country when it comes to abortion, when we talk about laws that are being passed and and images that are being shown and death that, that seems to be reigning and brokenness that seems to be reigning, whether it's abortion or Ukraine and Russia or COVID or you name it, this Easter week, we don't operate as a people thinking that, that Jesus is laying in some tomb or wandering around some tomb aimlessly, not being able to do anything. His hands are tied. Now, the tomb is empty. So we live in this already not yet. We long for the not yet, the, the day where, where all our tears will be wiped away. The brokenness will be gone. Cancer will be gone. Abortion will be gone. But we live in the, the already, where we have some blessings, we have some amazing truths, we hear amazing stories, but we also have a lot of brokenness, a lot of hurt around us. But this week, we have hope because we know that after Friday, Sunday came, and an empty tomb was there, and that's worth celebrating. We'll talk more when we come back. So as we finish up today, again, a lot of news in the country. When it comes to abortion, we're still keeping our eyes on the summer uh, because that's when we will know the case out of Mississippi. Uh, will Roe v. turn back? Will Casey versus Planned Parenthood be shot down? Will we see a full reversal? Will we see a partial reversal? What are we going to see? We don't know. feel good about it. I think we're in the right place. I think, uh, I think the court's going to do the right thing. I think... People are going to lose their minds if that's the case. But again, blue states are preparing for it. And we've said it on here multiple times. If you watch what the abortion lobby is saying, you can kind of get a sense of where they believe this is going to go. And they believe that Roe is going to be overturned. They really do. So they're making, they're making push in their states to make sure that at least their states, the blue states, the pro-abortion states, will be able to provide those abortions. Planned Parenthood's making adjustments. The abortion lobby is making adjustments across the board. Uh, the, pharma, the pharmaceutical companies and lobbies making adjustments to get abortion pills to um, women everywhere around the country in the mail. Mailboxes are becoming abortion clinics. Uh, we're seeing this. We, we know it's coming. And so we, we have to think about uh, what that means. But this week in particular, we need to celebrate and know that we serve a, a, a living God. And so even in the brokenness that we see around us, this week we celebrate an empty tomb. We, we recognize the fact that, that God sent a mediator in Jesus to take on the, the death that we couldn't take on, to take the full punishment of the sin that we committed, not that Jesus committed, to drink the cup in full, and to say it is finished. Look, when he said that, he meant it. This isn't an everyday, like, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of complete. No, it is finished. And so when, when we have faith in the truth of the gospel, when we embrace that, what a beautiful picture it is that, that even in the tough times, even in the hard times, even on the mountaintops, in the valleys, and everywhere in between, we serve a living God. The tomb is empty. 
That's what we're going to celebrate this Sunday. A Jesus that, that serves, that went out serving. Monday Thursday is, is uh, a picture of that, where he's washing the feet of the disciples, even Judas, knowing Judas was going to turn, him, turn on him. He went out serving, feeding them at the Last Supper, explaining to them, even though they didn't really understand it at the time, explaining to them what was going to happen. This is my body that was broken. This is my blood that was shed. I love the picture when he's washing the feet of the disciples and Peter comes up and says, yeah, you're not going to wash my feet, Jesus. I need to wash yours. Which is not an outlandish thing to say. I mean, it's something we might have said. It's like, no, you, you don't wash mine. You're, you're the master. I will wash yours. And Jesus says, look, if I don't wash your feet, like you won't be cleansed. And, and then Peter says, well, give me a full bath. Wash from my head down to my toes. In, in, in the picture that we're seeing of a humble servant, of, of Jesus, the God of the universe, getting down on his hands and knees and washing the feet of the disciples, even the disciples that would turn on him, even Peter that would deny him. That's the Jesus we serve. That after all that, he still went to the cross, took on the sin, took on the judgment, took on the death, and then he conquered it. He conquered it. He rose. And, and, the, and the piece that I read in that last segment was, was saying that everyone that saw him after he rose, because they saw his death. They saw it happen. He was killed publicly. And then everyone that saw him after he rose, that's all they wanted to talk about. And then did you hear the boldness in Peter's preaching where he's saying, He's looking at all of them. He's saying, you're the one that killed him by your hands. But he ain't, he ain't just wandering around a tomb. He, he's alive and he's, that tomb is empty. They saw it firsthand and they boldly went and proclaimed the truth of the gospel. And generations were saved because of that. The gospel continues to move today in Knoxville, Tennessee, and every corner of the planet because of what happened right there. And God continues to work and continues to move. And what a blessing it is. Celebrate that this week as we celebrate Easter. The tomb is empty. He is risen indeed. What a beautiful picture. We'll talk to you next week.